Hey, this is Philip Tharman, and welcome to The Hangar. Unfortunately, most men think the things that they are going through are impossible to overcome. Because we are isolated, we imagine that what we're facing is the worst life possible. Even worse, we blame ourselves for all of it. In spite of our best efforts, we just don't see a way out. Why? Because in masculine conversation, the dialogue about God and his power has disappeared. Men no longer understand what God is capable of. Through these men sharing their stories, our goal is to convince you that God is able and willing to do the impossible for his sons. The Hangar is where we begin to reclaim manhood. Welcome to The Hangar. guys welcome back to the hangar podcast a vertical podcast for men i am coach mo and i am here with the often imitated but never duplicated philip thurman how are you this morning philip man i'm doing great coach mo great to be here with you guys honored to be able to be a part of this podcast well talking about honored this is an absolute honor for me because i have been wanting to hear your story since i started here with vertical church so i'm excited and uh and i'm ready to get started so when i got here one of the First things I realize is that you were not born in America. Is that correct? That is correct. But Mo, I'm going to go off script for just a second. Is that all right? Hey, yeah. I'm going to brag on you guys for a second. I am really proud of you and Ben and Chase and Luke, all the guys that are part of this podcast. And I want to say this on the front end uh, that it is an honor to be a part of this podcast with you guys. I uh, heard a quote that I think you guys are really living out. And that is that men really want to be in community oftentimes before they come to Christ. And I think that's what the Hangar Podcast is creating. So I just want to say thank you to you and Ben uh, for taking the courage to do that, to put that out there, to help men uh, live their lives the way that they need to live their life. And that's in community instead of isolation. And then hopefully because of that community, they're going to find Christ. So great job. I got to say that on the front end, give a huge plug and a shout out to you guys. So proud of you. Oh, man, thank you. That's like... That's it's awesome to hear coming from you. I appreciate that. Uh, it's good to to know that we're on the right track, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's just amazing. The uh, one thing that I can't understand is what it's like to be born elsewhere, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was born and raised in the United States, um, and when I got here, and someone told me that you were born in Bangladesh, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, you don't look. Bengali, yeah. right? So what's that What's that like? What, That's can awesome. You, yeah, give us a... Give I us am identified as what's known as a third culture kid. And a third culture kid is one who is born in another country, doesn't necessarily look like them, but thinks like them, comes back to his home country and looks like them, but doesn't think like them. <laughs> and so I'm a third culture kid. And so for me, really, there was no other way of knowing life. That was the way I always knew life. Life was that way. I was actually born in East Pakistan, and then in 1971, we had the War of Independence that became Bangladesh, and we'll talk more about that down the road. Uh, so I was actually born over there, so really that's all I knew. Um, I was a white-skinned guy, blonde hair at the time, blue-eyed kid. Uh, growing up in Southeast Asia, I didn't think anything about it. That was a normal way of life. My home life was phenomenal. Um, I'm probably going to be one of the most unique guests that you have in the sense that I have a very good childhood. 
my mom and dad are still married 55 years later. My dad is 84 years old, and uh, they have a great marriage, a great relationship. I grew up in a home where a mom and dad loved each other. They taught us how to love God's Word. Uh, I've never, ever in my entire life heard my mom or dad drop a cuss word. I've never seen my dad be cross at my mom. Uh, they've had disagreements, and I've seen that as a kid growing up. So I, I grew up kind of in the anomaly, kind of, uh, honestly, I'm abnormal. I thought it was normal, but looking back now, it's a very abnormal life. Yeah, I grew up overseas, but beyond that, my family life has been phenomenal. I think that's what's kind of made me who I am today. And so I realized coming into this podcast and even in life, leading a church, that uh, my perspective is not really the normal perspective anymore, and so I have to kind of fight through that. But growing up there was an incredible experience. I would do it all over again today. There are a lot of people who say, man, I would never go back to that country. I'd never be a missionary kid. Not true for me. Had great difficulties, had some pain, some scars, uh, but at the end of the day, I I would do it all over again. It was an incredible experience. So when you were born over there, I mean, you just weren't why were you there? Like, why were your parents there? What was it about uh, that area that drew your parents to um, be missionaries out there? Yeah, yeah. So my parents were missionaries. My uh, dad, as a, I think he's told me before, is a nine-year-old boy in his little church in Arm, Mississippi. Nobody knows really where that is, but it's outside of Silver Creek, which is outside of Monticello, uh, Mississippi. As a nine-year-old boy, my dad had this fascination with world geography. And he began to study a lot about Southeast Asia, the Pakistani, the Indian, Bengali, more along the line of Islam, the Muslim people, and just really fell in love with the history side of that thing. My mom, on the other hand, is in Camden, Alabama, ends up going to Troy State University, that's what it's called now, and my mom uh, begins to work in the cafeteria at Troy State, that was her job in college. And while there, she began to notice that the people that were working in the cafeteria were international students. And the large number of them were Muslim students. And she began to understand a lot about Islam and the Muslim culture and the Muslim faith and women and their role. And my mom just began to really pray about um, this whole idea of could she be an influence among Muslim people and more so Muslim women because Muslim women are kind of kept down, they're, they're, they don't, aren't allowed to speak a whole lot. And so out of that, uh, my mom and dad meet through just some incredible things. My grandmother kind of hooked them up. She'd heard my dad preaching. My dad was a pastor at the time, a single man in Alabama, and heard about him and his love for the Muslim world, Southeast Asia. And she knew that her daughter uh, had this love for Muslim people. And so through her connection, she connected my mom and dad together, and then the rest is history. And honestly, uh, my mom, which is kind of a unique story, there's a book about my mom's life uh, called Gloria, uh, written by a lady named Barbara Joyner, who is no longer here, but she was a dear friend of my mom. She went to Bangladesh for a month and followed my mom, and my mom had this calling on her life to make an impact in the Muslim world with Muslim women and trying to love on them and share the love of Christ with them. And so both my mom and dad are, are my heroes uh, they're not perfect, and, and we all know that, but they were incredible role models for me. So it was a tremendous experience having them and watching them live their faith out before me. My dad um, did a lot of church planting. Uh, that's the reason why I'm a church planter probably today. Uh, my dad did a lot of work with relief work, and then my mom was kind of what we jokingly called was a quack nurse. <laughs> 
she had the Merck medicine manual, which nowadays doesn't exist because you can do it all online. But she had a manual that was thicker than two Bibles put together. And anything that anybody had, her philosophy was, if I can take care of my boys, then I ought to take care of these people who have nothing. Mm. You've talked a lot about a heart for the Muslim people. Now, we're, we hear that here and now, and the, the Muslim people are, I mean, we, we think about them a lot, we, we hear about them a lot, but this is a little different, especially in the time, right? During yeah. this time, uh, having a heart for the Muslim people, um, so much so that you're going to move, <laughs> you know, yeah. around the world to go and, uh, and to, to, to minister to them, to love them. Yeah. Uh, that's not a common thing in this day. Yeah, in this day and age, even now when I tell folks that I grew up in a predominantly Muslim country, about 96% of the population is Muslim, um, even when I tell people now there's this real radicalization of fear, you know, Muslim country, I'm not really sure you ought to be there, you ought to be going. Uh, what you got to understand is I grew up in that culture and I got to know all those people. I mean, 90% of my friends were Muslims because 96% of the country is Muslim. So the people that I'm going to play with, my neighbors, my friends were Muslims. I had Muslims, I had Hindus, uh, Christians were a minority. But in that, it's really interesting because there are some Muslim friends that I have and my family have that, quite honestly, I would probably call them before I would call some of my Christian folks because of the friendship that we have with them, the love that we have with them. You know, unfortunately, our culture is all about polarization, if I can just be honest. It's about being a Democrat and the Democrats hating the Republicans, the Republicans being Republicans and hating Democrats, the liberals being liberals and hating conservatives, blacks hating the whites, whites hating the blacks, and you just, just go on and on and on. We're about polarization, kind of pulling that apart. But here's what I've discovered as I've lived in the world and been a part of the world, so to speak. That polarization is really not there. I mean, yeah, you've got your radicals in every faith. Even in Christianity, we have our radicals. Um, but really, generally, the people of the world love each other and are always trying to figure out how to live with one another. And that was what I discovered. And, you know, it, it was amazing. We had things happen in our community, in our village, where Muslims or Hindus were angry, and they were going to come at night and bombard our house and raid our house. And a Muslim neighbor was at the river boat edge, and he heard this commotion going on, and he discovered they were coming to our home. He rallied up about three to 400 people who stood in the, in the gap and protected our home and said, you're not going to touch these people. These are our family members. And that was Muslims, and that was Hindus, Christians, all side by side, who said, this, this is our family, these are our friends, and you're not going to do that kind of stuff. So unfortunately, we live in a polarized society, and our culture is all about polarization. But you get outside of North America... And quite honestly, you start seeing people of the world wanting to figure out how to live with people of the world. I mean, yeah, you got your ISIS, you got your guys who are wanting to kill everybody, but generally they're peace-loving and wanting to love people. So I, I have, to this day, Muslim friends that I would call almost my uncle and aunt. I'm closer to them than I am to my real blood uncles and aunts. They love me. We take mission trips to Bangladesh twice a year. And if I got into trouble or problem or something happened, probably some of the first people I would call would be some of my Muslim friends. Yeah, so there's no de denying that you've had a unique upbringing. Yeah. And you've had an opportunity to see God do some pretty amazing things in your life, right? Yeah. Um, you'd mentioned some, you know, bombings or people wanting to come blow up. I mean, give us a little bit of insight of what it was like, some of the, the major events that took place where you see God really moving 
during your time there, your childhood in, in Bangladesh? Man, there, there's so many opportunities, so you're going to have to cut me off because I've, got, I've just got a ton of them. But uh, the one I was just talking about, there, there was a, a group of folks from the village, and they're uneducated people, so they, they kind of uneducated follows uneducation. There's this hype going on that there's a white American guy here, and his family's here, and they're spying on us, or they're doing this or doing that, just all untruths. And so they hear these kind of stories, and they, they're able to kind of gain some momentum. Let's just go break in their house. Let's go see if they really are with the CIA, you know, those kind of crazy things that are going on. Uh, so we've had those kind of things happen. We've had people walking by our house throwing bricks at windows in our house um, just, just because we were foreigners, because we were different. And most of the time, the people that did those types of things, Coach Mo, honestly didn't know my mom and dad. They were just outsiders. They'd heard that there was a foreigner in town, and so we just needed to, to kind of cause some ruckus, maybe trying to make a name for themselves. But quite honestly, there were very few times that we felt any fear or had any difficulties or problems that were going on there. So um, I, 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 I've got that as a story that, that was kind of one of those things. I also, um, just kind of in growing up, had some things happen. My mom was diagnosed with leprosy, mm. and uh, I, I remember as a kid... <laughs> kind of going through that time, questioning God, uh, why? Why would my mom and dad give up leaving the comfort of America to go serve God in a foreign country, and then my mom would have this disease? But even through that of watching God heal her, and she is completely healed of leprosy today, uh, we had to, it was a very difficult journey, saw God in that. I mean, it was amazing how God used that, and God helped my mom love on beggars and people when we would travel, and I'd get to watch her love people that were the uncommon that nobody else would love. I got to watch my mom and dad love on them, so it was huge. Um, during the war, I think it was during the war, or maybe it was around a civil unrest time, my mom fell. She slipped on a, a patch of water and fell and broke her ankle, I think it was, and to try to get to the capital city because the medical help where we were in the town we lived in wasn't going to happen. And so getting her to the capital city was a nightmare, but God provided a way. It was absolutely unbelievable. There's no way we should have gotten to the capital city as fast as we did. Um, another time, my dad was riding in a vehicle. My brother was driving, which really wasn't supposed to happen, but my brother was at the age that he wanted to drive. And here in America, you get to drive, but there we couldn't. So my dad was gracious enough to let us learn how to drive. And my brother got too close to a bus that was standing still, and my dad's natural instinct was to stick his hand out. So he did, and his hand broke. And my dad passes out, and my brother's got to get to our house in Gopalganj. And it's in the middle of the afternoon, and uh, they've got to get my dad to Dhaka because it's a significant break, and my dad is in and out of consciousness. And we have to cross the Ganges River, and there's no reason why we should be able to get across the Ganges River. It's going to be too late. They don't want to travel at night. Well, as my mom and dad pull up and my brother pull up to the ferry in our vehicle, uh, there is a government dignitary who is coming from the capital city to Foripur to the side of the river where we were. And they know my mom and dad because they travel there and they love my mom and dad, the, the river people and the ferry people. And they said, man, this never happens. I mean, the last ferry's already run, but because we know you and you need help, we need to get you to the other side of the river. And so they make a trip for my mom and dad. Should have wow. never happened. But just seeing God's faithfulness and God's calling on my mom and dad's life was just absolutely phenomenal. And so there's just story after story after that. The war, and I think we'll talk about that and, and, and spend some time on that, but living through the war, 
Uh, our family and one other family were the only two foreigners that chose to live in the war, to stay there during the war uh, of East Pakistan and becoming Bangladesh. And uh, so that was a phenomenal experience being able to live there. My mom um, heard when the war was ending uh, fairly soon uh, what the color of the national flag was going to be, and she could sew. So she stitched the color of the flag, and I got to raise the national flag. Uh, probably as the only foreigner or the first foreigner to raise the Bengali flag. Now, we didn't make the news or media, but I don't think anybody else was doing that at the time. My mom did that. So just some very, very unique opportunities and God's movement in our life. And I'm telling you, I've got a million of those kind of stories. Yeah, just uh, you'd mentioned earlier when we first started about the the Civil War. You know, growing up, I've learned about American Civil War, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but never... Uh, none of us can ever say that we've experienced that. Anyway, none of us here who were born and raised in, in the United States. Um, what is that like going through, living through a civil war? Yeah, yeah. So give you a little context very quickly. Um, we, we have the big country of India. On the east side of India was a country called East Pakistan. And then in the northwest corridor of India, uh, in the northwest, was a country called West Pakistan. Well, in order for us who are East Pakistanis, now called Bangladesh, uh, if we made parliament decisions or government decisions, they had to go across the border through India to West Pakistan. And then West Pakistan's parliament would make decisions. And so it's just this back and forth across the, across the Indian borders. Well, the Indian people got really frustrated. They were tired of this trafficking and people coming back and forth. So they came to the East Pakistani people from the best I can understand and said, listen, we'll help you become your own country. We'll help you fight this war. And it became a predominantly religious war because India is predominantly a Hindu nation, but yet you've got East Pakistan and West Pakistan that are Muslim nations. And so um, India comes and says, we'll help you do this. Well, there was a group of people called Mukti Bahinis, which are called freedom fighters, uh, that began to fight the war for East Pakistan. And in 1971, the war break, broke out. It was a fairly short war. At that time, we were living in a town called Foripur, and I'll never forget, I mean, I was three, four years old, so I was young, but I'll never forget it. I'll, I'll remember it like it was yesterday. There's a lot of things most people don't realize and remember when they're three and four. I remember the war. Uh, I don't remember explicit details as far as my family and all of that, but I remember my dad talking about uh, the difficulty of moving to the capital city. What are we going to take? I mean, we're, we're going to go from Fordpur to Dhaka, which in that day and age took about 12 hours because cars and rivers and the roads weren't all that great. Well, we began to hear that bridges, major bridges, were being bombed by the Pakistanis, so you could not go across the, the bridge. And so my mom and dad had to make a decision. What are we going to do? Do we stay here in Foripur, or are we going to go to the capital city of Dhaka? And they chose to go to the capital city of Dhaka. Now, I've seen, I've seen people be dro killed, dropped to their knees because it was a religious war. I saw a Hindu man in front of our, guest, in front of our house at the gate. A Pakistani soldier caught him and asked him if he was a Muslim or Hindu. The man, I think, lied and said he was a Muslim. The guy ripped his pants, his outfit off, and realized that he was a Hindu. There's a way to tell, and I won't be graphic, uh, but there's a way to tell if a man is a Muslim or a Hindu. You're circumcised if you're a Muslim. If you're uncircumcised, you're a Hindu usually. And the guy was uncircumcised, and the guy put a gun to his head and dropped him to his knees. And I'm a four-, three-, four-year-old kid. I've seen that. Mm. Uh, so living through that, and then remembering my mom and dad having to decide, okay, what do we take? We're going to probably have to walk through rice fields. We're going to have to ride on boats across the river. We're going to have to live with people along the way. This could be a two-day, three-day, four-day journey to get to the capital city. 
We're going to go to villages where we know nobody, and we're going to trust. Can we live with them for a night? Can we stay with them as we try to grow? And I, I just I can't imagine that. Uh, but my mom and dad took the clothes that they had on their back and the clothes that we had on, and I think they took their wedding album. And can you imagine walking away from your home? Looking back and not wondering if you'll ever see it again. I can't imagine that. But the faith that my family had in doing that, of leaving and going to the capital city and walking away from the house that you built, kind of your dream home, and not knowing it will it be there when you return, if you are able to return after the war. Um, so just those kind of things. And uh, it was a long process, evidently, to get to the capital city. Uh, we lived with people that we didn't know. We had to go in river boats. And I think what normally was a 12-hour trip, I don't remember exactly if it was a two-day trip or a three-day trip, but it was longer than planned. Uh, you hear bombings, you hear tanks. I can, I can hear a sound right now of a tank, what a tank sounds like when it's going forward, when it's reversing, when it's turning. All of those sounds are very, very unique, and you can tell if you've lived in a war what those sounds are. People make fun of me, and that's okay. I don't shoot guns. I've never shot a gun in my life, and I'll, I've shot a BB gun and, and all of that. But I have a tremendous respect, I guess, for guns or a fear of guns. Sometimes if I'm around a gunshot, I know it, I hear it, I fall to the ground because of my fear of guns because I saw what guns can do. Uh, so those kind of things make me a little bit more unique, and people make fun of me because I don't want to go to a shooting range and shoot guns. I'm a guy. I like to think I'm a full-fledged guy, but I have no desire to go shoot a gun because I've seen what guns can do. And so, again, I'm not a, against people who own guns or don't have guns. That's not my point. My point is just when you live through a war, you experience some of the stuff that I've experienced. You just have a different outlook and an out, you know, take on it. Man, let's uh, let's transition a little bit, moving a little bit forward. As you're moving into an age of transition, um, you go off to boarding school. Talk a little bit about that season of your life. Yeah, yeah. So that that was uh, that was one of those really difficult seasons of my life, if I'm real honest. Um, but yet also one of those great experiences in my life. We came to the states our sixth grade year, my sixth grade year. My parents would serve four years on the field and then one year at home, four years, one year. So I was here every four years. So I missed a lot of time. So I was here for my sixth grade year. And we had to make a decision. Do I stay here in the States and go to school with my cousins and live with them and try to make that happen? Or do I go back to Bangladesh? I was homeschooled up until that point. And uh, so our family really prayed about it. And I said, I want to go to boarding school in India, about 2,000 miles away from home. Uh, so I left my house uh, as a seventh grader and went to boarding school in India. I'll never forget the day that my dad took me. I didn't know anybody uh, at boarding school. I had a couple of MK friends from Bangladesh that were there, but they were older, and I knew that I wouldn't probably have much to do with them. They were there if I needed them. Um, so um, I, I'll never forget the day that my dad took me and dropped me off, and then I, I watch him walk away, and it's like my security, my blanket, my everything that I've ever known is walking away from me, and I'm, I'm here with people that I don't know. And so that was a very unique experience, but um, I went to boarding school, 7th grade through 12th grade. My 11th grade year, I was back in the States because every four years we'd come home. So my 11th grade year, I was back in the States, went to high school at Columbia High School in Mississippi, and then decided I want to go back for my senior year because all of my friends, all of my buddies were there in boarding school. Uh, so I went back to boarding school and did that, and it was an incredible experience. I mean, friends who are growing up smoking pot, because it's growing right there in the mountains, um, alcohol all around, um, kind of the sexual side of things. I mean, obviously, we're all sexual at 
natures and had these desires as young guys, teenagers and all that kind of stuff, and had girlfriends and opportunities to have girlfriends because it was a co-ed school. Uh, there were opportunities uh, for sexual activities, and I'm, I'm, I know some of my friends uh, partook in some of those activities. I don't know, except for the grace of God and parents who taught me well and I believe were on their knees praying for me every single day, I think it was because of that why I never ventured off. I, I've never smoked anything in my life as far as I smoked a cigarette one time, but I've never smoked marijuana, never had a desire for drugs, didn't have a desire for alcohols, was able to stay sexually pure. Uh, again, there's no reason. I can't explain it other than God and parents who love me. Because in high school, I, I tried to be a follower of Christ, but I'm a teenager. I've got hormones. I'm, I'm a guy. I see girls in tight shorts and breasts sticking out. I mean, I'm a normal guy. So I had tendencies, but for whatever reason, God had me uh, protected from all of that. And maybe it was the subconscious. I always had this subconscious thought in my head that I would always let my mom and dad down. They were my heroes. And I, I jokingly say that my mom and dad were probably part of the Holy Spirit in my life, that I couldn't dare stand to look at my dad and disappoint my dad after he'd given his life to follow Christ and my mom had chosen to follow Christ and then me to be the wayward son. I just I couldn't live with myself with that. Uh, was I perfect? Heck no, I wasn't perfect. Did I do some things that if my mom and dad knew about would probably hurt their heart? Probably so. But to this day, the things that I did then have not impacted and have not had the consequences because they were, you know, maybe I cussed, maybe I got into a fight or something like that, but I didn't do other things that have huge ramifications and consequences to sin. So let me get this straight. Seventh grade, you have a decision to make. The family prays about it, um, but you choose. Is this, is this decision ultimately yours to yeah. go back? Like, it, it rests with you. Okay, Philip, we've prayed about it. Um, these are your options. You get to make this decision. So a seventh grade boy is deciding to go off and essentially, I mean, being you're on your own, right? You know, your dad right. drops you off. All you've got is the friend and the friends that you that were a little older. You've yeah. got um, teachers. You know, I, I, I mean, I couldn't even imagine what that's like to, yeah. to be in a in a boarding school, much less one in India, right? Yeah. Um, so you're essentially alone. That's right. That's yeah, right. So, so this is this transition from. Uh, you know, boyhood to to manhood essentially is happening all on your own. Um, what's just like a, a brief, maybe two minute version of what that's like emotionally? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, my mom and dad, I guess, had laid such a phenomenal foundation. Uh, and looking back now as a 50 year old guy, I realized they were great parents and there was a lot of intentionality, although I didn't realize it was intentional. Uh, but my mom and dad knew this was a Christian international boarding school. And my mom and dad, one of the things that I think made them unique and made me and my brother unique is that they allowed us to be a part of the decision-making process. And they allowed us to make decisions at the level, at the age we were that was appropriate for us. So for me, to be a sixth grader, to have to make a decision that I'm going to go off to boarding school away from my parents, it was very difficult. Don't, don't for a moment think it wasn't a, a battle and a fight. But for a moment, you know, I mean, you're a sixth grade kid. I'm going to get to be away from mom and dad. It's going to happen earlier. Most people go off to college in America. I'm getting to go off in seventh grade. There was a sense of fear, but there was also this sense of adventure. And can I just be honest? I think most men, we want to live an adventure. We're adventurous by nature. So this was almost tapping into the natural adventure that I have. And it kind of began that adventurous journey toward manhood for me, if I'm just honest. 
So as a seventh grader, I'm able to kind of make some decisions. And, 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 but I've got some kind of parameters. I've got coaches because I was athletic. I had some very godly coaches. I had some coaches that weren't that great. So I'm having to decide which coach am I going to go to? Who am I going to listen to? Who's going to be my advisor? We had dorm parents. I had dorm parents that could speak into my life. Do I listen to them? Do I not listen to them? So I had to make a lot of those decisions. And I guess my parents just really trusted that emotionally, physically, spiritually, that I would always do the right thing, I guess. So now, we every four years, your family comes back. So you spent, was it sixth grade? And 11th grade. And 11th grade. Yeah. So sixth grade, you made the decision to go back to go to boarding school. And then in 11th grade, now that decision was probably a little easier. Like you knew. Sure. So it's obvious you're Bengali. Yeah. At heart, that's where you're at. That's where you belong. Those are your people. That's home. Yeah. Um, actually, this, the United States, this is foreign. That's right. right? Yep. Um, so you had no, I mean, it seems, I mean, I don't want to speak into, you can tell me otherwise, obviously. Um, it seems to me that that's where you wanted to be. You had no interest in being in the States. I mean, you've mentioned that even the, the people that you grew up with um, in Bangladesh were closer to you than even some of your blood relatives. Yeah. You know, this is home. Um, now, you get off a plane in the United States on your way to college. You got to take me there. How, how does this happen, and what's going through your heart that brings you to the United States? Yeah, so um, I, I knew that I, I wanted to go to college, and I, I wanted to play soccer. I mean, that was kind of my livelihood. That's what I wanted to do um, and, and be a part of that. So my mom and dad, as a senior in high school, gave me a trip home and um, and basically said, you know, there'll be somebody there, hopefully, to pick you up at the airport. I'm pretty sure they will be there. Uh, so my dad went to Mississippi College. My mom went to Troy State. I didn't really know much about Troy State. I knew my family, my dad's side of the family, were all in Mississippi, so I could be here and during holidays and all that. So I chose to come to Mississippi College. Um, it was a frightening experience, but on the flip side, when you're a child of the world and you're used to traveling, I mean, I was traveling from Dhaka International Airport to New Delhi, India, had to go through customs and immigrations all the time, had to know how to navigate that, how to find cha my chaperones, how to know which bus was the right bus to get on to go to school. It was eight-hour bus ride from the ca uh, capital of New Delhi to where my boarding school was. You just learn to know how to navigate all that. So you have very little fear, and maybe that's, that's the bad part of it for me, or I have a great deal of faith. I don't know which one it is. So really for me, yes, there was a massive fear in coming back to the States and getting off the airplane, but I knew my aunt was going to be there. I knew she was going to pick me up, and then they would kind of take care of me. But then I got a car, and just some funny little things. Uh, I got in my car, and my aunt tells me, she says, be careful of the law. Well, I thought she meant, like, the speeding signs, you know, that the, says 55 miles an hour. That was the law to me. I had no clue what that meant. Well, I found out very quickly on my way to Mississippi College on my first day what the law was. Blue lights, I'd never, nobody had ever told me that a blue light cop would pull you over and you need to pull over off the side of the road. So I've got to figure this stuff out all on my own. So I pull over, roll the windows down real fast, and I'm kind of going through my actions, and, and he's leery of me. I have no idea that I'm, I'm a threat, that I'm a danger. And I, I mean, I'm just an innocent little guy. And quickly learned what that was all about, what the law really meant. Then I've got to go to Mississippi College. I've got to figure out how to um, 
sign up for my classes? And then do I have enough money in my account to do that? Where am I going to be living? How am I going to be eating? All of that type of stuff. So there, there was just a ton of things going on. So this is like tripping me out right now. All right, so here's what I'm thinking. I'm looking at Philip. You look like you're from Mississippi. You know what I mean? You yeah. look like just like anyone else around here. You're moved from Bangladesh to go to college. You're figuring out the laws and yeah. who the law is, you know, um, all on your own. You haven't had this training. You don't even know to pull over. You don't know if you can turn right on red. Like, you don't know yeah. any of this, right? right? So the guy pulls you over. And he sees a white kid, but what he doesn't realize is underneath, it's a Bengali. That's so right. you are probably freaking out. How, how did college go? What was that like? Yeah, college was a, a, a pretty amazing experience as well. Um, again, having to learn so many of the American things, things that you guys take for granted. I'll give you an example. A guy walks up and says, man, you want to go to Mickey D's, the Golden Arches, and get a Big Mac? And I'm like, what? I mean, are, are you speaking another language? I mean, what are you talking about, golden arches and getting a Mickey D's? Uh, that, that was a foreign language to me. Or, hey, uh, let, let's go check out, you know, uh, Star Wars or the Rangers. What are you talking about, Star Wars? I mean, is that stars and wars? Uh, stars have wars with one? I mean, what, what are you talking So there's a language. There's a whole cultural thing that I've got to understand. Outfits. I mean, I grew up where people didn't have anything. I mean, a guy has an outfit on his, on his body, and that's pretty much what he's going to wear all the time. And then I come here, and people are changing their clothes two and three times a day and sometimes more. And, I, and, and I'm wearing one outfit for the day, and I've got people making fun of me because I've had on the same thing that I had on at 8 o'clock in the morning as I do at 7 o'clock at night. And you don't change your clothes, Thurman? You don't ever do anything? Soccer buddies who don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm locked up in the room trying to study or trying to get things ahead because that's why I'm in college is to go to school, to get an education, not to party, not to screw around, not to do things. So my mindset was totally different. So, yes, that really, I guess I was a little bit different. I, I adjusted pretty quickly to the American life and got comfortable and, and all of that. So I made some adjustments, obviously. So here we have a boy. Born in Bangladesh, lives through civil war, um, you know, just these Ameri uh, amazing, not American, amazing stories of God's provision, his taking care of your family, you know, showing up in ways that here in America we could only imagine, mm. you know, um, because maybe, I don't know why, maybe we just don't expect God to act and move the way that he does, um, or we've just been so filled with useless things uh, that we don't rely enough on him. I, I don't know. But you witness all these things. We're talking about people being shot at your gate um, as a child, right? You're witnessing yeah. this. Friends, um, you know, just your life is, is full of these events, these stories, these seasons, um, when you're just we look back, and maybe even you look back, I don't know, that it's just hell mm. in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, and it's the hindsight that shows you what God has been doing through all of these things. You choose to go back. You have your option to come and to, to be an American. Mm. You choose to go back. You choose to go back twice. And then you come here, and now there's a shift because you had a heart and a love, which you always will, for Bangladesh and mm. the people of uh of of that region 
But now all of a sudden your life's mission has brought you back. God has brought you to living for, and essentially, which is crazy, it's full circle, your parents are missionaries to Bangladesh, but now Philip Thurman is a missionary to the United States. Hmm. So you've gone to hell and back. Yeah. Where are you right now? Right now I'm in hell. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> America is not hell. I was just being sarcastic. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not what I mean. Um, I, I, you know, when you guys came up with this title, I'm just going to be real honest with both of you, you and Ben. Um, I really struggled with that because I don't think it was hell. I mean, that was life. And that was just the life. That was a story that God was writing on my heart. And, and one of the incidences that happened that I'll kind of wrap up with was while I was in boarding school that probably could have been viewed as a pretty hellacious event. It's uh, October 1984. Mrs. Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India, is assassinated. I am doing my project, my senior project in Agra, taking our, my class, some of my classmates, to um, the Taj Mahal, one of the seven wonders of the world. And uh, we get through viewing the Taj Mahal. We come back outside, and um, Mrs. Gandhi has been assassinated, but nobody knows this. So I get on the bus, and our bus driver, who I'm responsible for, and I've got about 50 students with me, um, says, we're not going anywhere. We're not going back to school. And we're like eight hours away from boarding school. And I've got to get these students back. I've got some teachers on the bus. And this is my senior project that I've got to have to graduate, so to speak. And so I, um, the bus driver says, we're not going to move. And I'm like, we've got to get back. We've got to do something. Well, come to find out, Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated by her bodyguard, who was a Sikh. A Sikh is a guy who wears the turban. He doesn't cut his hair, shave his beard. Uh, was assassinated by her bodyguard. Well, all of a sudden, I'm reminded that one of the guys on the bus is a Sikh. He's one of my friends. So I told the bus driver, I said, we're going to have to go. He said, well, your friend is not going to be able to go because they're burning Sikh villages, buses, trucks. He cannot go, and I'm not willing to take the risk of having my bus being burned or you guys being killed. I said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put him down on the back seat. We're going to take our jackets and cover his body up, and we're going to sit on the edge of the seat. And we're just going to go, we're going to go to boarding school. Well, somehow or another, I coached him to, to go and we go. So we get about eight miles, 10 miles outside of the city of Agra. There's a military checkpoint and it's a bamboo pole across the road. And the police guy gets onto the bus. He's got, a, I guess, an AK-47. I, I don't know. He has a gun, on his, a gun in his hand, an automatic rifle. And he sticks it to the bus driver's head and he asks him, is there a Sikh on your bus? And the bus driver's just, he, he can't even say a word. He's just stunned. Well, this army guy looks on the bus and he sees a bunch of foreigners. So I guess he thought he'd have fun. Well, because it's my project and my guy, I'm sitting in the middle aisle of the bus. This guy turns and starts walking down the aisle with his gun pointed at me. He takes the gun, and I thought he'd discovered that my friend was laying down in the back seat behind us. He takes a gun and places it on my forehead, and he asks me in Hindi, is there a Sikh on board your bus? And I, I, in that moment, I felt God just almost audibly saying, I got this, don't answer. And so I just played dumb. And a second time, he kind of got angry, and he st stuck the gun even harder to my head and said, is there a Sikh on board this bus? And again, I felt God saying, I got this. So I've got a gun to my head, which is pretty hellacious, so I guess that's going to hell and back. But I knew if I was dying in that moment where I was going to spend eternity, quite honestly, not to be super religious, but that's, that's what I knew. But in that moment, I was in attention. I just felt like God said, I got this. You don't need to worry about this. And the guy turns, and he walks off the bus. And a few moments later, he gets back on the bus. He hands our bus driver something. So we don't think anything about this. We start driving down the road. 
And we come to the next checkpoint, and our bus driver kind of shows this piece of paper that was given to him. So about three or four checkpoints down the way, I finally go up to the bus driver and say, what's this all about? How, how come we're not stopping anymore? He said, well, that guy that got on the bus and held a gun to my head and to your head, he's one of the leaders of the Indian Army, and he's given us a security clearance so that we don't have to stop anymore. We can go all the way back to boarding school. So you talk about hell and back. That's probably where the reality of this theme came is hell and back. But for me, it was a moment where God just proved his faithfulness over and over and over again. Growing up in the abnormality of normalcy, Philip's parents set the foundation for an epic life. With a unique view of the world, his commitment to love people has allowed him to see God at work in unlikely ways. Through the difficulties of civil unrest and war, Philip's questioning of God was answered with God's supernatural provision. His belief in the power of God, solidified at a young age, has set the course for the rest of his life. Imagine it. Immersed in seemingly hopeless situations, God did the impossible in his life, in his heart. How would you respond? Doubt, anger, checking out? Understanding God's ability can help us pace through the unimaginable. Maybe you can't celebrate your parents like Philip. Maybe you haven't lived through a civil war. But just like Philip, your heart was built for adventure. Join us next week for part two of Philip's Hell and Back story. Thanks for hanging out with us at The Hangar.